0: Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly, I'm Drew Kreisman.
1: And I'm Ira Kreisman.
0: And on this episode, we'll be discussing the gameplay, music, and artwork of Final Fantasy or Final Fantasy I. The lead designer is Hironobu Sakaguchi, the battle system was designed by Akatoshi Kawazu, the composer was, of course, Nobuo Uematsu, and the lead artist is Yoshitaka Amano. One other thing that's important to note is that Hiroyoku Ito, who would go on to be a major player in the franchise, worked as a debugger on the game. He would make his directorial debut, uh, co-directing, Final Fantasy 6. So you're gonna want to remember Hiroyoku Ito. Since this is our first time breaking down one of these games into its gameplay, music, and artwork, uh, there's probably going to be a lot of just gushing initially over Nobuo Uematsu and Yoshitaka Amano in particular, talking about what we like in general, about their styles, about what they bring to the franchise, about their importance and backing up the stories written by Hironobu Sakaguchi. Of course, we'll talk specifically about a number of works from both of those artists throughout uh for this specific game but it'll be fun to set it up more generally which we will also do with where we're going to start which is on the gameplay the battle system the thing that a lot of people think is the most important part no matter how story driven your game may be is it fun to play? So let me start with that the most broadest question I, I can ask uh, most bro- the most broad question I out The most broad question that I can ask about the game which is is Final Fantasy fun to play?
1: Yes. I'm gonna go with yes <laughs> on this one. I'm pretty sure I'm right. I will give you a couple reasons why I think I'm right. I think that the continual rewarding system of leveling up, uh, which you can see in other games like Dragon Quest, D&D, and so on, but it's, uh, it's particularly rewarding to constantly see your characters grow, especially that halfway point where Bahamut gives you the class upgrades is particularly satisfying. Being able to engage with an interesting story and an interesting world is a lot of fun. There are a couple things, though that I found on my original playthrough and back in the early 90's frustrating. First was frickin' Warmech! Did I mention that last time? <laughs> yeah, yeah Warmech? Warmech. Okay.
0: Yeah, now we got you.
1: <laughs> so there, there are a couple things that I found particularly difficult and frustrating my first playthrough and I didn't even realize that they probably shouldn't be that way, I just learned how to deal with them. The first one is targeting and the second one is spell charges. So, in the original Final Fantasy game, there's no active time battle. If you've never played this game, but you've played other Final Fantasies, you're used to your character's active time battle gauge increasing. And once it's all the way full, you get to choose what that character does. They do it, and uh, the monsters will act when they're ready, and your other characters, you know, all your characters will act when their ATB fills up. In Final Fantasy, you choose what all your characters do, and then they do it, and the monsters do their things depending on their speed. So if you've got a particularly slow character, they might always go last. If you've got a particularly fast character, they might always go first. But usually they it's kinda it's mixed up every time, so you don't know who's going to do what when. This is important in the first Final Fantasy, because if you target a monster and you kill that monster with your first dude, but you were really scared of that monster and targeted him with all your dudes, all those dudes are gonna beat that dead monster to death even more death not not to like lich death but death death like smear on the ground death (laughs) and it's annoying it's freaking annoying if i was so scared of what you know that giant ogre and there were two giant ogres and i was focusing on the one because i wanted to make sure that i killed one and i my warrior hit it and it killed it and then my black mage fired its fire at it and it had no effect because it was it was striking that empty area This was a thing that would be changed in later games, and when they did the remakes, the Dawn of Souls remake I'm most familiar with, that was fixed so that your character would automatically target a living enemy. Extraordinarily irritating.
0: That was the right way to go, though I think there may have been a way to have it possible for you to attack empty space if you weren't paying close attention there's an argument i think to be had that it actually increases the amount of forward thinking you have to do and certainly it's a, it's a risk-taking thing do you want to risk attacking empty space or is it more important to you that you for sure for sure take out that monster on this turn because you can't withstand another barrage of attacks sure. next turn so there is a strategic element
1: to yeah it. and i i definitely learned that I had to split up my attacks. My warrior and would not attack the same monster as my thief, and then I would have maybe my red mage and my thief attack the same guy, and my warrior attack a different guy and have the white mage do some sort of a support spell, so just to try to make sure that I didn't waste any attacking opportunities. But still, it was annoying.
0: It was. And especially for me, because I know I'd played later games in the series first. So going back to that was seemed even especially primitive. You're just like, wait, what? How is that? Why? Why would you even allow that to be possible? (laughs) I'm attacking empty space nobody in an actual battle and this has been a a critique of all the Final Fantasy battle systems even down to the way they're presented with it being this weird thing where everyone's stopped right? right and it happens one thing at a time and people who aren't used to it it can be very counterintuitive so that's even an extra level of it. nobody in any real fight would ever just attack completely empty space come on
1: sure maybe probably
0: Probably, not, not that I've ever H- having an never been part. in a except yeah, with you. Certainly, we've never battled goblins, though.
1: No, but I, little yeah. brothers, though.
0: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then you mentioned the spell charges—a really oh, yes. weird system that w- they would never use again. That again, I'm not 100 percent sure has no merit. I think it presents an interesting set of challenges, but I think the systems they came up with later on were clearly all better
1: <laughs> i i definitely prefer the magic point system having spell charges that is having your character only be able to cast for example five first level spells before they have to rest is annoying that said that is a, a system from D. it comes right from dungeons and dragons i've been playing D with the same friends since late high school and i still find that system of having to have my spell casters memorize their spells before they go to sleep and only having a certain number of charges Irritating. I still would prefer magic points, but uh, some of my friends are a little more old school in that way. And, <laughs> and we do we do a point system for other characters in other environments, so we do it both ways. But it is it is a thing in other games too, and it's just a thing. I I prefer magic points. I don't know how else to say it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do too, and I th- I think it just intuitively works, and it also gives you another part of your character. Like you said, one of the cool things about these games, whatever system you're using, is always character progression and your ability to get better at doing different things, and so having magic points is another area where you can... You know you can increase both how often you can use magic by getting more and more magic points as you level up and in addition to how powerful your magic is there's just another element there of character progression that, that would take some interesting turns throughout the franchise and how you level up your magic and level up your characters and we'll talk about all those of course but pretty standard leveling system in the first game I, again i would imagine without really knowing but taken mostly from the dungeons and dragons tradition of just kind of slowly but surely accruing especially back then a small number of experience points right. for each one battle and the the characters just slowly automatically progressing
1: yeah yeah i'm pretty sure that is taken directly from D and in Dungeons & Dragons, generally uh, 20th level is the highest level. Uh, I do not recall in the original Final Fantasy game, was it 99 or was that not something that happened till later? Not sure. I'll bet somebody knows. And if anybody's listening who does know, feel free to let us hear it.
0: Yeah. A little audience participation, that is. But what all of these things amount to, I think, ultimately is that a game that is much harder than a lot of the games that would come after it. It's pretty punishing, whether it's not having enough spell charges to get through an entire dungeon, you know, or having one targeting mistake at the end of a dungeon cost you and you have to go all the way back. And uh, one of the things that always stuck out to me that I remembered was this was before there were save points, and in fact you had to again buy items like getting spell charges you had to spend your money which was few and far between to get houses but I I think they might have been renamed tents because tents was later more of a thing but uh, whatever it was that was the only way to save the game and so even your ability to not lose a bunch of your real-world time if you played for an hour and then got beat by an enemy that hour of progress was just gone and so you really had to be strategic about where you placed your save points. And and it's funny because a lot of old school video games were difficult because of the limited capacity of the Nintendo Entertainment System. And so it's like, you can only design a certain amount of levels, but... The Final Fantasy still would have been a long adventure without being punishingly difficult. And I think that's one of the things that they learned quickly. And I know there are people who, there are definitely two sides of this argument. Is it better if your Final Fantasy game is challenging or is it better if it's open for anyone to pretty much play as long as you use some basic logic and, and be able to get through the game? I tend to be more in that latter category. I like it to be fun to play, but if it's too challenging, you know you're putting a barrier between your audience and getting to experience your, your story and the other stuff we're going to talk about in in this one here with the music and the artwork and all that good stuff
1: sure if what your audience associates with your game is really really wanting to just snap their controller in half well you might have gone a little too far right. so th- there's yeah. a balance to be found there one of the other things i wanted to mention with regards to gameplay is and this is also something that does show up in dnd is elemental weaknesses long before pokemon would appear though perhaps not to the same extent as pokemon there were uh, you could deal extra damage to certain character or certain monsters depending on uh, what sort of elemental magic you might use against them or if we had a a weapon that was affiliated with a particular element for example uh, fighting water creatures if you did electrical damage to them you could deal extra damage usually this would be in the form of a black spell lightning or bolt, depending on your version. Same with you know the fire monsters. You could use your ice spells. The ice monsters, you could use your fire spells and deal more damage to them. That is something that has held throughout. The which elements do extra damage to which monsters can be is sometimes mixed up a little depending on on the game. It's always been something that I really liked. I, I always thought that in that that should carry over to all games. So if you're playing Street Fighter, or no different example, if you're playing uh, Mortal Kombat and you use a fire attack against Sub-Zero, that should do extra damage to Sub-Zero. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I maybe it does, I don't know. But it's certainly a sensibility that I think makes a lot of sense. And so I was thrilled when Pokemon did it to such a great degree, though I do have an issue with some of their types. But nevertheless, I think it's a it's a cool system, and I, I like it when games use it well.
0: Yeah, I agree. And uh, that reminds me of one of the other things that I really liked about it was driving home right away the importance of the different classes, making them really feel like they're doing different jobs. That would be another name they would be sometimes known by jobs or classes, but feeling like they're different units in a battle, like you would feel whether it's a Dungeons and Dragons party adventure, it's done in Lord of the Rings with, you know, they've all got their different strengths and weaknesses. And in particular, I remember because of the stuff we were talking about with the spell charges and the way all of that worked, if you chose a black mage, and I always wanted to have a black mage in my party because I was drawn to the design um, and that clearly was the right artistic (laughs) pull because uh, we'll, we'll talk about the design of that character in a minute, but it was almost a useless character most of the time because you didn't want to use one of your magic charges in a battle against a random goblin or the most of the random encounters that you would have in those games. But then... When you did get to the boss, the big baddie at the end of the dungeon, your black mage suddenly became by far the most powerful member of your team. And what it always reminded me of was like siege weapons or something like that. Something that would be useful or useless in a a random skirmish. Something that would need to be protected in most random battles. But then when it's time to sack the city, (laughs) you know that's when you need it the most. And so I loved that just basic concept that you could be useless much of the time, but the most important member at the most important times. That's a pretty cool type of balancing act you've got to do if you want to take a character like that.
1: of the things added to the dawn of souls version of final fantasies one and two are special dungeons in final fantasy one there are four special dungeons one for each of the four elements of the game the earth gift shrine the hellfire chasm the life spring rotto and the whisperwind cove and what's particularly fun about these dungeons aside from being able to uh, get some cool new items that make your characters even more stronger than they already are, is that each of these dungeons has four bosses, and the four bosses come from later games. So the Earth Gift Shrine has the Two-Headed Dragon, the Aramen, Cerebus, and Echidna, all from Final Fantasy III. The Hellfire Chasm has the Four Fiends from Final Fantasy IV, Skarmiglion, Cagnazzo, barbarica and rubricant and i love rubricant rubricant is a really cool character yeah dare i say one of my favorite characters and i don't i won't say that often the life spring grotto has gilgamesh another awesome mainstay of the final fantasy series atomos shinryu and omega and whisper wind cove has typhon orthos otherwise known as Ultros, the phantom train and death gaze from final fantasy 6 so, uh we have talked a lot about versions, and you know, depending on the version you have the the name might be this or that, or the translation might be a little goofy. But when we talk about storytelling, when we talk about the oral tradition, stories often change depending on who's telling them, when they're telling them, who they're telling them to, who they learn the story from. So I have always found it interesting that when the final Fantasy series Well, in other games also, when they get remakes, sometimes there will be additions. Sometimes there will be a little more. Sometimes things will have changed a little bit. And I really like that. I really like seeing that in this version of things, well, maybe it happened a little differently. Or in this version of things, maybe because of perspective, you know, something looks a little different. Or maybe because of the time loop. You know, the caves didn't exist last time. Who knows? But I really like that every once in a while you might might put a different spin on things because we have a different perspective and i think these dungeons are a lot of fun and the haters can hate all they want
0: (laughs) i agree that's a good note to wrap that segment up on so let's talk a little well actually let's talk a lot of music we're we're, going to talk about some of the specific tracks i want to get into that but let us first give praise to praise be to yevon uh except Uh. in this case to
1: you. Oh, yes, yes. Well done.
0: <laughs> Praise be to Nobu Uematsu. Nobu Uematsu has been a major influence on my personal musical style, uh, his melodies in particular. Is something he's obviously known for, but he has had pretty easily the greatest career of any composer in video game history. There are certainly other people who've had wonderful careers. Koji Kondo comes to mind, did most of the famous Nintendo themes that you can think of, the Mario theme, the Zelda stuff. He's had a fantastic career, but you're you're really not gonna find a consensus, any kind of objective publication anywhere in the world that's gonna make an argument against Nobuo Uematsu as the greatest video game composer of all time. His body of work is just patently absurd how many i think quite frankly it stands up there you've got to start talking about people like john williams as contemporaries for who actually he's in the category of you've got to get outside of the video game world he's just that good ira
1: yes (laughs) i i agree not being a musician uh, certainly hasn't influenced me in the way he has influenced you that said just as a like you were saying, a creative body of work, it's its really darn impressive and it does influence me in a lot of ways. I listen to, sometimes I listen to the originals when I'm at work or when I'm trying to be a writer. I will listen to orchestral variations. I will listen to The Black Mages, his rock band and their variations. I would, you mentioned John Williams, I would also liken him to Joe Hisashi who has scored the Studio Ghibli films. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Hisashi... Does not have the the same volume of work, I don't think, but it is of the same caliber or, or of a of a comparable caliber. Just beautiful on so many levels and so fitting to whatever it is uh, he is scoring. And that I think is particularly impressive, given how many different types of worlds and characters and events he has had to score.
0: Right. And and that's the thing. Uh, coming back to with Huwamatsu is just that it's there are so many characters, and you can talk about some of the most indelible things about the series being how many characters, how many memorable characters have come out of the Final Fantasy franchise, and they've all got pieces of music that embody who they are. Most of them unforgettable. You can't separate. Eris or Aerith will have that conversation, I'm sure. But you cannot separate her from her theme. You cannot separate Terra or even the game Final Fantasy VI from her theme. You can't separate the franchise from the prelude or the main theme, the first two of the first couple of pieces of music you hear in this game. So it's just like... He's as important a creative member of why this stuff has been popular and been successful, I think, as even as much as Hironobu Sakaguchi. I mean, if the the stories weren't there, it'd be pretty music backing up nothing. But, I mean, it just doesn't work that way. And throw Omano in there. But usually the way scoring works is it's the last thing that's done on any project. And a lot of times early tracks have to be done when a composer is just looking at a sketch. So Yoshitaka Omano designs a character... Hands that to Nobuo Uematsu, who comes up with a melody just based on who he thinks this person is. And the number of times he's been able to do that, whether it be the most evil of villains, to the most conflicted of villains, to the most heroic of heroes or sympathetic of tragic losses, to battling gods in outer space, it's just what has he not scored? What kind of person or world or scenario has he not been asked to come up with a piece of music for and he has succeeded every single time.
1: Furthermore, no shade to Mr. Sakaguchi or Mr. Romano, but there are showcases specifically for the music of Final Fantasy. In fact, if I recall correctly, a few episodes ago, you mentioned you went to one such showcase.
0: Indeed, a sold-out show on the campus of the University of Denver. As a part of a concert series called A New World, which is a spin-off of the Distant World series. This is music from Final Fantasy pared down to a very simple ensemble. There was only one repetition of instruments. There were two violins. Other than that, only one instrument apiece. There was one horn player. He would go back and forth between trumpets and Cornets and and I think he might have played a French horn in one song. There was one flautist, there was one cello, there was one guy on the piano, there was one percussionist, and that was pretty much the ensemble. So it was a stripped-down version. It was conducted by I can't remember the guy's name. I'll have to look it up and, and put it in the notes for this. But uh, Arnie Roth is his father, and Arnie Roth is the conductor for the orchestras for the original. Uh, voices and distant worlds projects and and all of those kinds of things so this is like a second-generation conductor and a third-generation ensemble that are doing smaller pieces that oftentimes don't get played by the big orchestras when they go and tour. I've seen the Colorado Symphony Orchestra present Nobuo Uematsu with their full choir. That was a sold-out show. Uh, They've sold out the Hollywood Bowl, 10,000 people for, as you mentioned, the Black Mages. So, yeah, these showcases, and they're playing songs from 30 years ago that they didn't manage to get the last 10 times they went on tour. They're, they're still finding melodies of uomatsu's that have been underrated or have been, maybe haven't gotten to get out of their 8-bit chiptune sounding ways yet, but still recognizing the classics of his melodies and, and counter melodies and all the things that he's really, really good at and presenting it on stage to this day 30 years later.
1: So shall we talk about some of those melodies in particular?
0: We shall. Let's first mention a, a couple starting with well one of course the you can't not do it. It's the prelude. It's it's everything that Final Fantasy is. It's simple but complicated. It's all it is is a, it's an arpeggio, but it loops back in on itself, much like a two-thousand-year time loop, if you will. <laughs> it it, it <laughs> loops in done. a way that makes yeah, right. Uh, that makes you only slightly uncomfortable because it's it's chromatic. It's it, it doesn't stay on the exact same scale the whole time. It changes scales, but it never gets uh, any blue tones. It doesn't go outside each time it changes its scale. It for that arpeggio stays inside side of the scale so essentially you've got the perfect nice little sounding the first thing that they teach you in music play a little scale up and down those notes that's just automatically comforting it's as simple and comforting as a piece of music can sound up and down the scales the first thing they teach you when you learn an instrument and then all he's done is take that and start arranging it and looping it in such a way that it creates this unforgettable like we've talked about, the theme of the series—it's familiar and it's foreign at the exact same time. It's a brilliant piece of work, and of course, it would uh, be in all of the games throughout the franchise. And uh, they would go—he would go on to add things to it over the years, and those would get really interesting too. It would become a much bigger piece, but in the original game, all it was was the arpeggio that loops on itself. I think every four, or maybe it's even like a weird number. Maybe it's like every five measures it loops, which also makes it a little bit strange. And then, the other piece that that we have played, that we've talked about, that is in every Final Fantasy game, it's the opening theme in this one. It plays during the flash card, the the title (laughs) card at the very beginning, and it would be, it's in the credits of every single game. It's an indelible Final Fantasy thing. That's one of my favorite words, apparently. I'm going with indelible these days, but uh, it really is anyone who, if they ever said, yeah, I'm a Final Fantasy fan, could sing or hum to you the main Final Fantasy theme on cue, no problem, all the way through. Yeah. So do you have anything to add on those two particular pieces of music?
1: Not so much on the prelude. I I think you did a nice job with the technical bit there. One of the things about the opening theme that so enamors me is it it reminds me of other themes like that. Like you said, if you talk to a Final Fantasy fan and you mention the opening theme, they could hum it. Same with if you asked uh, a Star Wars fan what the opening theme of Star Wars is, or Star Trek for that matter. These are arcing stories that have encapsulated themselves in a particular theme, and that's hard to do. Uh, You you will see shows and, and movies that have theme songs or, or have uh, songs that are that try to capture it in some way. Some of them do a great job. Very few of them succeed as strongly as the Final Fantasy opening theme and prelude. I would say Star Wars does Star Trek does Indiana Jones probably yeah but, but there aren't a lot. Yeah,
0: I think that's a good list. I think one of the other things that's really interesting about that theme is that there are several others throughout the franchise that are kind of in its vein. And it again, it has this combination of cultures. It's very European sounding, and it's something that we would see repeated again in Final Fantasy II, one of my favorite themes uh, being the Rebel Army theme and uh, it's something that would be common in a lot of Final Fantasy IX's music, which of course is largely a callback to the early games. And even in this one, Matoya's Cave. another one that is built on a very similar sort of regal structure. It's built up to be a kind of empowering. You could see it as a a sort of march through the streets. And and it's also march built. That's something you'll see a lot of times. A lot of the main themes in Final Fantasy games either are explicitly marches like Terra's in Final Fantasy VI. It, it just begins like there's a march while the credits are rolling. There's they literally a <laughs> march,
1: yes. <laughs>
0: there's a snare drum in the background, you know. And that's a that's a good way to test is this or is this not a march just in your mind put a military snare drum in the background and a lot of these songs including the opening theme from the very first game and a lot of the main themes you could just put that snare behind it certainly the rebel army from final fantasy II, i think in most iterations it does have the snare drum behind it so marches because there's almost always that kind of forward momentum uh, especially at the beginning of a final fantasy game Another thing that's almost always at the beginning of a Final Fantasy game, where do you go? What's the first thing you do? You go to town. So so I'm going to do two in a row because they're different themes, but they're both immediately recognizable. Again, if you played this, I think if you played either of these themes to somebody who's even loosely familiar with Final Fantasy, they would go, is that Final Fantasy music? I think they would know that right away. So I'm going to play back-to-back little snippets from Corneria Castle and the song simply titled "Town." What you've got here is essentially Uomatsu carving out a specific thing that somehow he would nail over and over and over again, which is... This setting of the town, the small place, the normal people, the place where you talk to the NPCs, the beginning of the journey. Sometimes they're even in the middle of the journey. One of, I think, both of our favorites, which has a hilariously mistranslated name that sometimes they fix, I prefer when they don't, I prefer when they leave it in the I Garland will knock you all down category, is from Final Fantasy VI, Uh, Kids Run Through the City Corner.
1: (laughs) You know... On the one hand, I do like a certain self-awareness about which mistranslations work or have become famous enough to allow to work. However, Kids Run Through the City Corner is a bit gruesome. It's a little
0: violent, yeah.
1: Unless the corner is like, you know, the square or the plaza or something. But yeah. Right. (laughs) I think think we can call that one Kids Run Through the City and it is as evocative and tone-setting as the music itself and this particular town music as you just played for us uh fits the same role would you not say
0: absolutely i think it's you know it's this kind of interesting balance you that he strikes because there is a melancholy tone to it while still being mostly uplifting kids run through the city being more obviously i think melancholy because that world just kind of is in that place and we're still learning about especially corneria man when i booted up the world of final fantasy a couple months ago for the first time and started playing that when you get to the corneria castle at the yeah. very beginning and they started playing the music like yes. it was one of those things that it just hits you It feels so final fantasy and it feels so uematsu And I think part of the reason why it's emotional, not just the nostalgia, is because he knows how to put just a hint of this is a place with a princess who's been kidnapped and their knight has gone rogue. And and, and trying to knock people all down and and, and those kinds of things. So uh, I I think it's something that he he really manages to strike a nice balance between the uplifting, adventurous opening theme, the main theme, uh, which is one of my favorites from the series. So I'll put a little clip of that in right here. That's one that's still being played to this day. Again, something that if you played that to somebody, they go, Oh, that sounds like those Final Fantasy games. It just, it's still good. I think the first one is one of the best main world overworld themes that Uematsu ever came up with. Again, carving out this specific area of I'm good at setting the stage of just a place. It just feels good to be in a place. Uh, so we were talking earlier about his ability to see a character or understand an event and write to that. But being able to write to a place, uh, much like Howard Shore did The Shire, I think yeah. beautifully, it's that that place is almost inseparable from its music, like we were talking about with the characters. You think of The Shire, you think of that theme. You think of Corneria, you think of the theme. You think of the very first time you saw an overworld map and this song that we just played will pop into your head.
1: I feel like I'm a little underqualified to talk about Uematsu's music, except to say that I love it. But I do think that I feel comfortable saying that one of the things that sets video games apart as, as a piece of art or as, a, as an artistic medium is that it can, when it does it well, combine the graphic arts and the musical arts and the storytelling arts. And that's not something you really see anywhere else except in movies. But then video games have the advantage of putting you in control. As as we use the metaphor of the hand of fate on the controller uh, an episode or two ago.
0: I'll give you an example of how that's impacted even in the music. The very first time, specific memory in my mind, I'm jumping ahead several games, but that's what these episodes are good for a little bit. The very first time we walked into that bar, I believe in yes. South Figaro and Final Fantasy yes. VI, and Shadow's music started playing instead of the normal town music. You stop. In a movie, you can't stop. The song plays for however long it plays for. But knowing that the tone had shifted, we, as the... Controller of how the story would progress decided to slow it down because of the interesting musical direction, editing choices, and just the quality of that track. And another one, one of the early ones for me, like that, because again, it was a shift in tone from Final Fantasy One, is in the Chaos Temple or the Chaos Shrine, the, one of the first dungeons. It's not the first actual dungeon that you really go to, and then you come back to it later. It, it's a shift in tone. It's a much darker sounding thing than anything that we've heard so far from Uematsu. Now we're nowhere close to him doing liberate fatale or one-winged angel or anything on the level of that dark and foreboding and the other thing it is and I don't think it gets enough credit for this is it's his first use of motif. because later on you would go to the shrine temple and though it's not exactly the same they have very very similar recurring themes listen to the two of those back-to-back So yeah, good moody stuff there from Uumatsu. And of course, we can't finish this up without talking about two more pieces of music that would become absolutely synonymous with the series that would be used over and over and over again. Well, two and a half really. And this is something I love, the battle theme. Let's talk about that first because the battle theme starts as all battle themes would start for the next nine entries with the exceptions, of course, of 7 and 8. Giving us what? The familiar. The comfortable. Something that keeps all of the games clearly a part of the same franchise. Every time you get into a battle, which is a lot in Final Fantasy, it is, after all, about adventuring through dangerous territory much of the time, you will hear the exact same bass line. And then... They'll build something else, something different, and by they, of course, I mean Nobuo Umatsu. Hopefully, you haven't gotten tired of the love we're giving to Nobuo Umatsu, and, and, and it's not going to end anytime soon, but building something different over the top of that same basic thing. Again, Final Fantasy combining something totally familiar, comfortable, give me the same thing every single time, except it's also different every single time. And finally, something that I think, again, is something that even people who, it it might be the only thing they know about Final Fantasy. It might be something that people even know the sound, and it's perhaps the most perfect sound in the franchise to stand for exactly what it's supposed to stand for. Again, Uematsu completely nailing the feeling, and that, of course, is the victory fanfare.
1: Victory fanfare. Victory Fanfare.
0: <laughs> Again, people who don't know Final Fantasy know that short little collection of notes. Anybody can go, ba 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 and it sounds like exactly what it is. It's people being happy <laughs> that yes. they just won.
1: I have a, a quick story about the Victory Fanfare. For several years, I was a speech and debate coach. Speech and debate is a, a set of events involving speaking and debating. And one of the speaking events, <laughs> are you familiar with it, Mr. Creaseman?
0: I believe I may be, yeah.
1: So uh, the speaking events uh, include what are called interpretive events. You can do a drama interpretation or a comedy interpretation or a poetic interpreta- interpretation, easy for me to say. And I once judged a round where uh, one of the comedy interps included the victory fanfare from Final Fantasy. And my guess is I was the first judge to write on his ballot Final Fantasy victory fair with an exclamation point, possibly two, underlined a couple times, (laughs) and I'm pretty sure that kid went first in the round. I'm not saying it was because of the Final Fantasy victory (laughs) fanfare, but it may well have been.
0: You could play those collection of notes like if you just won money by playing the slot machines.
1: <laughs> Isn't there a... you are familiar with the professional wrestling world, is that correct? Indeed. Isn't there a pro wrestler who will occasionally play Final Fantasy Victory Fanfare?
0: He he's done it a couple times before, yeah. His name is Xavier Woods. It's not I mean, it's obviously his wrestling name and he has a video game channel called Up Up Down Down and
1: <laughs> Nice. Good for him.
0: Yeah, and he plays a a trombone when he comes out to the ring, and he plays all kinds of fun stuff. But yeah, he's definitely played the Final Fantasy Victory fanfare before. Uh, I think he's said publicly that Final Fantasy VII is his favorite video game of all time honestly if i had a dream guest of guests to have on this podcast not that i think we'll ever be able to have guests but it would be xavier woods like any like talking to sakaguchi-san or or uematsu-san it's like that'd be awesome but there'd be translation stuff there's all kinds of you know that seems really unlikely any of that stuff of course those would be dream guests but like just talking to somebody who i think is an interesting person who's a fan of this stuff as much as we are and appreciates it on the artistic level it'd be xavier woods and uh yeah, he, he played the, the fanfare on the trombone. He's They've also, he, he had a chocobo at one point, a stuffed chocobo attached to his trombone at some point for some reason. Oh, right. It's because WrestleMania was sponsored by Final Fantasy XV that year. And the other big wrestling crossover that some people know, certainly wrestling and Final Fantasy fans know, is Kenny Omega, who's a big Final Fantasy guy. And his big finishing move is the one-winged angel.
1: Good for him. So so that shows that the music and this particular musical element, uh, having hmm. gained at such a, a large level in... Final Fantasy is, of course, very popular, but it's less popular in the U.S. than it is in, for example, Japan. So that somebody with such a platform decided, you know what I'm going to do? During a yeah. pro wrestling match or at the end of a pro wrestling match, I'm going to play the Final Fantasy Victory Fanfare on my trombone speaks i think to the strength of this particular riff
0: right and in general i think going back to a larger point you were making earlier in addition to there being live touring you know musical acts official ones that uematsu himself helped arrange and help put on and sometimes shows up at including his band and and the orchestral performances there are countless Whether it be on YouTube or anywhere, there are entire communities organized around rearranging and arranging uematsu music or video game music in general. But even, you know, the the guys at OC Remix and their first several albums being uematsu centered. There's a reason that there are so many people in the world and you can find some stellar Stellar stuff. There's a, in fact, I'll, I'll shout one out right now. The Grisney Project, two S's, G R I S S N I. They're on YouTube. They are, and I, I without, I've only seen their YouTube videos. That's all I know about them. Uh, but I'm guessing they're a bunch of Juilliard kids or something. They're just these, you can tell they're technically exceptional musicians. And they do a number of Uamatsu tracks. That's just, it, it speaks to so many people out there. And I think you're right that it, the music probably has more crossover appeal than any other aspect of these games. That being said, (laughs) there is no shortage of fan art or collections uh, or even just appreciations of Uematsu or I'm sorry of Amano's work. We got to move to the next guy, Yoshitaka Amano. And of course, Amano has achieved success even outside of the Final Fantasy world. That's something right. that some of these other guys have failed to do. Uematsu's music outside Final Fantasy world hasn't been as successful. Sakaguchi's Mistwalker production really did not go well, but Yoshitaka Amano in addition to being the Final Fantasy guy for at least the first 6 and then and obviously still a huge part of it after that when the sometimes hated and often beloved tetsuya namura would take over for a large part
1: that'll be another The conversation yeah
0: <laughs> yeah but yoshitaka amano had success with vampire hunter d an yes. incredibly popular anime project and ha- has had uh, a number of galleries and, and is incredibly successful especially in japan even with stuff that's not Final Fantasy-related, and maybe most famously with Neil Gaiman at the beginning of the Sandman project, doing what I think some people consider the best graphic novel of all time, if not Watchmen.
1: Yeah, I was going to say Watchmen is going to be high on that list too. Dark Knight probably. I think All-Star Superman is up there. But regardless, Sandman is an incredible book. Yoshitaka Amano's art combined with Neil Gaiman's storytelling is phenomenal, to say the least. Neil Gaiman's had a a pretty good run lately of having his stuff turned into TV shows. American Gods is on now, and uh, Good Omens is going to get a run with David Tennant playing Crowley. I didn't know that. Have you read Good Omens? No. You are going to love this show. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I've seen the the first five episodes of American Gods, and it is absolutely off the rails insane, and I love it.
1: So if more of Mr. Guyman's books get turned into television shows and we got a Sandman, I mean, that would require some cooperation from D.C.,
0: There have been a number of failed attempts to make Sandman either a television show or a movie. At one point, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was uh, tabbed to both produce and play...
1: Play Sleep? Morpheus. Morpheus, right. Sleep,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: That would be pretty wild. But I
0: think that fell through. I don't think Joseph Gordon-Levitt's attached to it anymore. But I know that there have been a number of opportunities to make it.
1: So if they were to make such a thing, would you want the Yoshitaka Amano... Sensibilities uh, Artistic notes I mean he's got a style It, it is hard to mistake Yoshitaka Mano's art For anything else Would you want that To carry over Into a animated film or a, Or a television show Or a movie Or whatever I would possible? love to see
0: that happen. And I'm glad you asked that question because there was one other thing I wanted to mention that I had pulled up the webpage for the other day, but f- totally forgot about until you just said it. 1,001 Nights. Have you seen the way they did a few you YouTube right now? Go and YouTube. 1,001 Nights, Yoshitaka Amano. It gives you a sense of what his artwork in motion in storytelling would look like. Now, it's there's not. it's not standard storytelling i don't think there's any spoken dialogue so it's really weird and you have to do a lot of the work yourself but it's based on the stories that like aladdin and all that stuff is based on obviously with the 1001 nights for anyone who didn't know but i think it's about a 20 minute long video and yeah i mean you'd have to tone it down a little bit you couldn't watch that for an hour and a half your brain might melt and fall out your nose holes but Yeah, I could look at Yoshitaka Amano's art for 90 minutes if put properly with a story with modern sensibilities in that way. I think that would be really, really cool to see him, or even if it wasn't him directly doing it, uh, someone adapting but using his original sketches and his style. Oftentimes very featureless people, but with stark clothing and uh, elaborate settings. Typically, they're, the the world they're in and the clothes they're wearing and maybe their hair is the most interesting thing about them. A lot of times the characters tend to be not clearly gendered. It's funny that I think Tetsuya Nomura would oftentimes later on be criticized heavily for having androgynous characters. But when you look at the sketches, and I have in front of me uh, the complete works of Yoshitaka Mono from 86 to 2001 and for the stuff who I don't know who the characters are it's very difficult to tell what gender they're supposed to be and a lot of times it seems pretty clear that it doesn't matter there are a lot of sketches in here with characters that have no arms that they're they're missing certain features there's a lot of like a, the specific details of a face are less important than the action of the scene there's always something Happening. His characters are almost always doing something. He's a magnificent artist. He really is.
1: And if anybody listening knows who had to take this amazing art and make pixelated characters out of it, please let us know so we can give that a shout-out. Because, yeah, I mean, some of the... If you look at the Warrior of Light, and in, in more modern versions, like in Dissidia... The Warrior of Light looks like Yoshitaka Amano's sketch, more or less. Right. But the fighter doesn't really. Like, it, there are, especially the monsters and chaos and and the enemies, they look much more like Yoshitaka Amano's art. But the heroes, kind of, sort of, not so much. Like, I can't imagine there was any way to take some of something so amazingly beautiful, and I, I don't even know what the word is. Make it smaller, make it fit, make it something.
0: Yeah, make it presentable on the technology that was available. And a lot of times that might feel like butchering it in some ways. I would imagine it would almost have to. They're they're just the sketches are so gorgeous. And as sometimes pleasing as pixel art can be, I think one of the things that I actually wrote down here under that, the difficulty of going back and, you know, sometimes trying to sell people on the old games or whatever, but there are moments of beautiful pixel art, and it reminds me of stuff like, which, by the way, I've still not seen Lego Movie.
1: Are you Um, serious? Yeah,
0: I know, I know.
1: Goodness gracious. You'll Um, like it. You You should watch it.
0: And my understanding is that there's a consensus that it's actually quite beautiful to behold, despite the fact that it's... In many ways, retro and you know limited right and
1: and they make good use of their limitations in that. That's another re- reason you will right. like that.
0: And Jack White has a whole musical theory about how limitations are important and sure. you, you know so I, I think you're right that absolutely credit goes to the digital pixel artists who had to take a mono sketches and turn them into something. Quick edit from the future. Hello everyone. just FYI. we did learn more about Kazuko Shibuya shortly after this, and we talk about her in more detail later, but she is the person who did exactly what we're talking about here, the artist responsible for the pixel art, translating Yoshitaka Amano's gorgeous sketches into gorgeous pixel art, and also noteworthy that she is one of the very few women who's been a part of the Final Fantasy creation team since the very beginning and so uh, she needs to be shouted out her here and her work uh, given all the praise in the world. We will get deeper into it in future episodes though so just stay tuned. I think interestingly too is that one of his most famous sketches probably of the two from this first game uh, pictures Chaos, the final villain of the game, gigantic, taking up two-thirds of the sketch facing the the viewer uh, with his hand out and, like, yes. sand, I think, or pulling, pouring through his hand.
1: It's a beautiful piece.
0: It's really gorgeous. And in front of him, very small. In fact, you could miss that they're even there. You could stand there and look at that thing for a good ten minutes and not realize that tiny, tiny, tiny in the foreground are, are four warriors of light. And that's actually something that's mirrored in the pixel art and would be yeah. for most of the game. Something that's really interesting is that when you go into battle, the main characters look very basic. The monsters are what's drawn elaborately and really creatively. Yes. They get the most of the, the attention.
1: And oftentimes that last fight against whatever the, the last monster or boss is, they are towering figures, sometimes quite literally.
0: Nice. (laughs) I like that. I also wanted to mention the other main piece being the sketch of Garland, which I think later on they would get in the habit of putting an image behind the Final Fantasy logo and they would choose this sketch of Garland. It wasn't a tradition yet, but later they would put it there so again the two most famous images his two most important well-known sketches from the first game that would really help launch his career though he already had a little bit of one are of the villains not of the heroes of garland and chaos
1: Uh, if we could talk a bit about the pixelated art especially the the warriors of light just a bit there are a couple things i would like to mention well mostly i want to talk about the mages but to talk about the other guys first, the, the fighter, even though that would change over time, that still, I mean that, that sort of spiky hair that he's got, that's almost an anime staple. That's one of the things that rem- that would remain and uh, I think he's one of those indelible images. I think the thief and the black belt get overlooked a lot. They're not the most uh, inspiring images, I don't think. The black belt when redone in Dawn of Souls. Uh, when, when they do the remake, they make him look much more like the monk from Final Fantasy Tactics. And they renamed him monk, so that makes sense. The thing I wanted to mention about the thief is that a lot of people I talked to about Final Fantasy when I, was, when I was first getting into it at the time, they thought that the thief was an elf because his ears looked vaguely pointed. I never thought he was, but uh, a lot of people I have talked to about it have thought so also. I don't know if that's a widespread belief when the remake comes and the thief takes on the characteristics that would become more standard to thieves in final fantasy he's got that green bandana on and therefore we can't see his ears so i don't know maybe maybe the question remains open Yeah. yeah the most famous though i think are the mages red mage black mage and white mage
0: talk about knocking it out of the park yeah. with three character three character designs for three characters that have no character
1: right and they maintain to this day and if you look at a black mage that 's what a black mage looks like though it should be noted that when in the original game when you get your character upgrades the black mage takes his hat off and throws his hood back and and doesn't look like a Final Fantasy Black Mage anymore but in the remakes they kept that Uh, or they maintained what is now the classic black mage look
0: yeah i was at that concert whatever a week or so ago and uh there's a guy dressed as squall you know yeah some of that good but uh there's a white mage there's always a white mage there's always a black mage always and and red mage is a little less common but i it and polls have shown this, is one of the most popular, always has been. In fact, I think one of the most telling things about Amano himself being particularly happy with that design is that it shows up again in Vampire Hunter D. It's one of his favorites, the Red Mage in Vampire Hunter D. Very French, that hat.
1: That hat. uh, And I got to say... With a feather in it? No. As as you and I, I imagine and we've mentioned this before i think and we'll mention it again i tend not to choose favorites i tend to try to look look at things as a whole and i try to i try to understand it within context of itself if you were to ask me for example what my favorite star wars movie is i don't have an answer i tend to look at mm. it as a a single narrative with many fantastic elements and moments and a few that perhaps fall a bit short so I, you know i don't really have a favorite final fantasy I don't really have a favorite character, except maybe I do a bit here and there. I I am very partial to the Red Mage. I like the versatility. I like the outfit. I just, it it might be, it might be my favorite class. And a lot of that has to do with the character design.
0: Yeah. I don't know if it's my favorite character class, but as I mentioned earlier, I have always been partial to Black Mage. I remember when I played the original Final Fantasy, I thought that Black Mage, the design made it very possible that the character be a woman as well. The sure. the fact that, again, is a nice, you know, ode to Amano's original sketches of even regular people who oftentimes have indistinguishable faces. Black Mage literally has no face. Right. And... Of course, it would be nine games later. Well, I guess eight games later if we're (laughs) doing our math group. (laughs) If we're being snooty about our math. Uh, Vivi is one of the best characters in the history of the franchise and is that same character design from all those years before. It's pretty remarkable what he was able to do with that image because I think... I'm with you. I love the way Red Mage is designed, and you see White Mage in a lot of places. I think some people might even say that White Mage is more indelible than Black Mage. But I think Black Mage is maybe in the top five images. You think of Final sure. Fantasy. Yeah. There's crystals. There's Moogle's. There's chocobos. Right. Airships. Airships. There's Black Mage. I think that's Black a whole Maze, podcast Mage, we yeah. we got to do. I, yeah. I think
1: you're right. That's yeah. That's pretty strong. The three mages I think are the ones that really. Knock it out of the park. And yeah. <laughs> right in the just, first game. My goodness. Setting the bar a little high there, aren't you guys? Come on. Right. Leave some right. for the rest of us.
0: No wonder this thing saved a company. If it really did, if that's really the story. Or certainly we know that they went from being just some company to being squaresoft. Pretty much as right. this happened. You right. know, this was a huge huge success and these are the reasons why despite some of the things we talked about at the beginning of the podcast with some of the gameplay being anywhere from counterintuitive to damn right frustrating just you know certain things about it that don't work as well it ends with this some people might call it a deus ex machina i don't think that it is but it's still this idea that seemingly comes out of left field with the 2000 year time loop but it was also Clearly, and this is something I harp on whenever I do kind of review things when I talk about when I did my list of the best comic book adaptations. The reason I went with Daredevil is because I think it's so expertly crafted. You can tell that a great deal of care went into making each individual part of it. And that's what we see here with this artwork, with the music, with the combination of these things together. Like, man, these guys were inspired when they created this. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at Final Fantasy Weekly at gmail.com. Also, find us on Patreon at patreon.comslash FFWeekly for more episodes and content. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Join us next time when we describe our priorities when evaluating these games as overall experiences. Explain how thinking of them as art will differ from reviewing them as entertainment, and then apply all of that for some final thoughts on the game that started it all. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that we have episodes running all the way up through almost the very end of Final Fantasy VII that you can find on patreon.com slash ffweekly. And if you're looking for more Final Fantasy content, more video game content, some Star Wars stuff, comic book movies, sports talk, you can find all of that at patreon.com slash dcproductions.